Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with a bumper roundup of posts on the last two weeks of From Poverty to Power. It was over Easter, so we had um, only three week, three posts each week. So I've kind of put the two weeks together. So the first one um, was a book review uh, by a new book uh, of a new book by Charles Kenny, The Plague Cycle: The Unending War Between Humanity and Infectious Disease. Charles is a researcher at the Center for Global Development in Washington and writes really fast, clearly, if he's writing books already about the about COVID-19, um, but also very accessible. And this is a kind of accessible history of people against bugs. And if you want the sort of too, too long, didn't read version, the humans are winning for the moment. Um, I'll give you a sense of the style from, from his opening two paragraphs. The two leading killers worldwide at the start of the 21st century are heart attacks and strokes. That is evidence of humanity's greatest triumph. Until recent decades, most people didn't live long enough to die of heart failure. Rather, they were felled by a range of infectious diseases that picked off the young or swept through whole populations in pandemic catastrophe. COVID-19 is a terrible reminder that our victory against infe infection is far from complete and in all likelihood never will be complete. The cycle of population growth pandemic and recovery isn't nearly as violent as it has been in the past, but it's still with us. Many more infectious diseases have emerged over the past century than have been eradicated. And the coronavirus has demonstrated the immense costs we bear when people are forced to rely on one of the very earliest responses to infection, running from it. So Charles is a kind of remorselessly optimistic liberal. Um, sometimes he's a bit Panglossian, you know, uh, he wrote a book called Getting Better. Um, everything's for the best and the best of all possible worlds kind of thing. Um, and many of his concerns about the impact of uh, COVID-19 are about the pandemic's threat to that liberal agenda. So he's worried about out outbreaks of scapegoating, closing of borders, a reversal of economic globalisation. Um, and he thinks that COVID should be a trigger for more globalisation, not less. For example, a massive upgrade of the World Health Organisation, the WHO, because there'll be more pandemics coming down the line. Um, he's got some nice historical sort of um, uh, forms of word words. For example, if the 19th century's progress against infection was largely a victory of engineering and city management, you know, all the sewers and that kind of thing, the 20th century's was mostly about vaccine. Vaccine workers, community volunteers, pharmacists, researchers and the drug industry. But his optimism is laced with anxiety. In particular, the mindless use of antibiotics in agriculture is triggering, you know, increasing prevalence of resistant strains of bacteria that could send us back to using maggots to clean festering wounds. He's got a very kind of, uh, he's, he's got a great turn of phrase on this kind of thing. Um, so things to worry about, but overall he's always like cup half full. Second post was... Um, Creating New Horizons, Paths to Shift Power and Imagination in Development. And this was the final post, the swan song of my colleague Maria Faciolince, who's been working with me for two years on the blog on the Power Shifts project. And um, she got frustrated, I think, with text and decided to go visual for her last two big um, uh, pieces. And they are they're amazing. So I'll just read her introduction and then I'm just going to have to leave it to you to look at the blog because I can't really describe pictures. So changing power requires us to see the world differently. 
So as a final burst of energy to round up the lessons, insights and guiding lights from these two years of the PowerShifts project, we have set out to create a virtual gallery for shifting power. Through collaborating with two wonderful illustrators, we've attempted to find more creative ways to communicate ideas and transformative practices. Then the exhibit that she's putting up uh, in this blog is, is by the Indian illustrator and artist Vidushi Yadav, and it's called Creating New Horizons, Paths to Shift Power and Imagination in Development. And what she and Vidushi agreed to do was to work with metaphors, you know, way, metaphors which are these kind of underlying narratives, which aren't sort of scholarly summaries of the debate, but sort of capture the feeling and the essence of a, of a subject. And he's got, uh, Vidushi has got some great um, uh, designs and, 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 and visual metaphors for different aspects of development. So do have a look if you've got time. Third post was by one of the gurus on power, John Gaventa, who's at the Institute for Development Studies in uh, Brighton at Sussex University. Um, and he's got a new paper out called um, Linking the Prepositions, Using Power Analysis to Inform Strategies for Social Action. And John's paper reflects on some of the main frameworks for understanding power that have emerged over the last 50 years. So people like Stephen Luke's, Joe Rowlands, John's own work on the Power Cube, the kind of things I use a lot in my course at the LSE, and they're used a lot by activists you know, uh, on issues from gender equity through to you know, lobbying government, to all sorts of things. Um, and the, the, the essay is quite scholarly. I couldn't, you know, I did my best to dumb it down in customary blog style, but failed miserably and ended up just quoting a lot of it. Um, one nice thing which got picked up, I think, on social media was this whole question of the word empowerment. I'll just read you a little uh, paragraph from John. Despite a common etymology, over the years, the vast literatures on power and empowerment seem increasingly to have diverged. Some, such as Sri Lata Bhattiwala, have argued that we have seen a systematic process of taking the power out of empowerment. For many concerned with challenging and confronting power, especially its more structural forms, Empowerment has come to be a word to be avoided, as it often now focuses on individual fulfilment disconnected from the underlying causes of powerlessness. So, you know, you empower by teaching people to read, giving them access to finance, all sorts of you know, tweaks which are very important, but ignore the deeper underlying power imbalances in society, which stop those small changes turning into something bigger. So it's a very good paper. If you're interested in power, uh, and the, the concepts underpinning power analysis, it's a, it's a real contribution, I think, to that literature. Fourth post was a summary of where, yeah, an update on where we've got to on our emergent agency in a time of COVID project. So this is a project that's been going for about six months now, um, which is trying to uh, spot what kinds of popular organisation are emerging in response either to the disease to COVID or to government responses to the disease. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of a, a really interesting design in that we don't really know where we're going to end up. We've kicked off a process with lots of conversations. Um, three main parts. We've got a bunch of clusters around particular themes. So, you know, social movements, um, youth and, and children, HIV AIDS, peace building. These have just emerged because people were interested and wanted to talk to other people working on those issues. So they're looking on in those clusters um, and then we've got that uh, backed up with some country studies in Oxfam and a big database uh, of case studies which has been tagged and crunched by uh, an excellent research researcher. 
So this post is about our latest conversation with the people who are convening all these clusters, and there's about a dozen of them now, and saying what are the patterns that are emerging across these different clusters. So one is that the, the pandemic is affecting the social contract, it's acting as a political pressure cooker. But what's interesting is it's pushing the relationship between citizens and states in different directions. In some cases, it's driving them apart. And, and citizens organizations say in HIV AIDS are just replacing the state because the state is just failing to function. In others, they're working much closer and organizations which previously were kind of external to the state and lobbying it and doing advocacy are now much more working with the state to deliver stuff which people desperately need. So just one thought which occurred to me is has the pandemic actually triggered a shift back to what we call service delivery, to actually just delivering um, food, healthcare, whatever it is, and away from this idea of lobbying and advocacy? Yeah, have we seen peak advocacy, I think, is the way John Leventer put it in a conversation. Um, and I think that's something to keep an eye on. Second point is trust is the currency. Trust is what matters during a pandemic. Um, trust is what build, it gives you public legitimacy, the ability to persuade people to do the right thing, you know, wear a mask, get vaccinated. None of that's going to work if people don't trust the government. Um, so what, so you can see trust as a kind of, you know, matrix underlying landscape of what's going on. And we're not very good at understanding it. We're not very good at mapping it. You know, the, the trust between different actors like CSOs or faith groups and the state, the trust between citizens and those different groups. There's something going on here which we're, we're sort of dimly aware of, but we could do with being a bit sharper. Then the second one is that, yeah, everyone's knackered. Everyone's exhausted. Um, you know, Irene Kautz, who chaired the, 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 the discussion, said we've moved from activism tourism, which is a bit unkind, but that's what we started off looking uh, at to sort of, yeah, where is activism emerging in, in the pandemic to concern over burnout and exhaustion. You know, it's great being a grassroots organization, mutual aid, self-help, you know, for a few weeks, but for a year, you know, after a year, everybody's exhausted. There's no resources. People are in a bad way. And has the aid system helped? That's another topic which we discussed. You know, has the aid system stepped up to the challenges of funding new kinds of organization, of funding new things, funding rapidly? And the answer is not really. So, you know, the aid institutions came across from this conversation as very slow, very clunky, unable to adapt. And maybe COVID-19 will be a further tipping point in the decline of aid in terms of its relevance in many places. You know, if, if, it, if it didn't step up during this pandemic, it would have lost a lot of trust apart from anything else. Protest movements were interesting. Um, you know, there's been a big closure of public space or, you know, dictatorial author authoritarian governments using the pandemic to shut down civic space. But there's also been a huge outbreak of big, big scale public resistance and protest. Hong Kong, Nigeria, India, BLM, the civil disobedience movement in Myanmar. Often these are not in response to COVID. Um, they're in response to just politics, you know, everyday politics, or not so everyday, but yeah, big political events. But they're happening despite COVID. So where, so with, again, a slight disparity. Yeah, where is what role has COVID played in the closing of space and the upsurge in big protests? And finally, I think this is going to be the issue we turn to in the last five months of the project: is the issue of sustainability, durability. What's going to remain out of all this? buzz and effervescence, as they say in Spanish, um, after the pandemic's gone? What will be the lasting impact of, of civil organisation during the pandemic? So we've got a long way to go. 
lots of energy, lots of conversations. It's proving to be a really interesting research project. And I'll keep coming back to you with updates. Fifth Post, another book review. I've been busy on the book reviews recently. So this is The Moral Economy of Elections in Africa by Nick Cheeseman, Gabrielle Lynch and Justin Willis. Um, and so the thing I like about this book is, it, you know, often you have these ideas which are kind of lurking around at the back of your head. A book or a paper can help you nail it. And this book nailed something for me, which is it explores the gulf between how politicians, not just in Africa, I must say, see themselves, right? So often politicians have quite a good view of themselves. They, yeah, they work really hard. They're involved for uh, reasons of, of public good. They're motivated by ideas of virtue. Um, not just, you know, this is the best way to thieve some money, because often being in politics isn't the best way to thieve some money. Um, <clears throat> but then how others often portray them is exactly that. They're just a bunch of amoral, power-hungry, corrupt thieves. And the interesting thing about the book is it doesn't say, well, this group's right and this group's wrong. It says, let's just try and understand what is going on here. And their organising idea is this moral economy, which they define as a continuing engagement between different ideas of what constitutes virtuous behaviour, an engagement that is both conflictual and productive and that has no end point. And the book identifies two ideals or ideas of virtue that shape the moral economy in their three case studies, which are Kenya, Ghana and Uganda. And these are the civic and the patrimonial ideas. So civic, um, civic ideas stress the importance of national communities. You know, we govern for the nation. If we're a politician, we're doing what's best for the country. And to do that, we're going to have national programmes, manifestos, formal institutions, transparency, accountability. Basically, the agenda of the donors and Western liberals when they look at you know, a region. But parallel to that are patrimonial approaches, which are about patron-client relationships. If I get into power, I have to look after my people. I have to get them jobs, I have to get them money, I have to you know, help them progress. And in a way, that's a new form of accountability. You know, I will be held to account in terms of whether I genuinely support and look after the people who got me into power. And what's interesting is that, that both of those are legitimate in some way. Uh, and, those, and, and the groups in patrimonial approaches are defined by geography, ethnicity, religion. Um, and it's the tension and interplay between these two logics, these two forms of moral economy, the civic and the patrimonial, which shape politics. So I just liked that because it was like a breath of fresh air um, and it gave you a sort of new way of looking at what, what you read about in terms of African politics. And it's very careful, by the way, not to make vast generalizations about Africa. It's very careful to say, this is what we saw in Kenya. This is what we saw in Ghana. This is what we saw in Uganda. So it doesn't fall into that, um, that, that you know, trap of, of essentializing or of oversimplifying uh, an enormous and complex continent. Then the final one was uh, me having a muse. It's called Programming in Chaos. What I, why I think we've been getting it wrong. And this is because I've been having lots of conversations about what are called fragile and conflict-affected settings, the really messy places, the Somalias and the Myanmar's right now and the DRCs. Um, chatting to Irene Hout and others about how aid agencies should be working because you know that's going to be the future of aid. Oxfam's decided to do much more in these, F, in these fragile and conflict places. Um, so we need to understand whether aid is the same there as everywhere else, whether it's different than everywhere else. Um, and that's the future. So we've got, to, we've got to put some serious thought into this. And the thing which helped me think about this was um, a very 
yeah, long-standing framework called Cunafin. I think that's how you pronounce it, which uh, came up with was come up with a guy called uh, by a guy called David Snowden and, and divides up situations into four broad types. There are simple uh, situations, what Donald Rumsfeld would have called known knowns, uh, where the situation is stable and the relationship between cause and effect is clear. You know, if you walk across a motorway, something's going to happen. Probably you're going to die. So the response: don't walk across the motorway. You know. Do it in, in, in 3, 3 a.m. if you have to, when there's fewer cars. Yeah, there are simple rules and toolkits for dealing with these simple situations. Complicated situations, what, what Rumsfeld might have called known unknowns, is the relationship between cause and effect requires analysis and expertise. So this is like, I'm going to fly a spacecraft to the moon and get it back again. So then what you've got to do is actually get a bunch of different experts of different kinds and, and, and get them involved. Now, the aid system uh, and many other forms of sort of intervention to make the world a better place is much is, is based on simple and complicated systems. Yeah, you know, so you have a project. The project sets out how you're going to build the bridge, how you're going to get the spacecraft to the moon, whatever it is. You have your log frame. You have your plan, your indicators, you know, your monitoring, evaluation, and your outcomes. Right. So that's the aid system is designed for those two situations. The point of the blog is that we are, we are actually on the other side of the Cunefin diagram in many cases. So there are two kinds of situation, broad kinds there. The complex situation is what Rumsfeld would have called unknown unknowns. So that's where cause and effect can only be deduced in retrospect. There are no right answers. You know, the battlefields, markets, ecosystems, corporate cultures. There's no tidy thing here. You do trial and error, quick feedback loops. Um, and this is the area we've identified for things like adaptive management um, and, and thinking and working politically. So these are areas where these new approaches, which I've written about a lot on the blog, have come up. The light bulb moment for me was that actually the fourth quadrant is different. It's called chaotic in, in, in Snowden's um, um, typology. In these places, all you can do is staunch the bleeding, fight the fire, stem the panic, and try and get back to islands of complexity because you know, there's, there's no logic to things. Um, things are chaotic. And I think the mistake we've been making is thinking that, the, that adaptive management works in chaotic settings, and I'm not sure it does. I think maybe we've got to get a different set of um, uh, conversations about working in these chaotic places. And that the penny dropped for me a bit when I did some research on adaptive management for the uh, for for a, a research program. We were looking at DFID funded governance programs, and we wanted to look at fragile and conflict settings. But we ended up going to the places that at the time were not that fragile, just because otherwise we couldn't get in, we couldn't get meetings, we couldn't get visas. You know, real fragile and conflict affected places were just too inaccessible to go and do research. So we ended up coming to a whole set of views which we claimed represented how to do adaptive management in, in, in fragile and conflict settings, but were actually for the complex quadrant, not for the chaotic quadrant. So and then, I, so then the question is, OK, so if you're in a chaotic quadrant, what might you need to do? How might aid programming need to be different? So some thoughts here. One is humanitarian aid, which is kind of weird. Like if you're somewhere like DRC or Myanmar, yeah, maybe the people just need water or just need food or just need shelter. So in a way, that's a simple intervention. You know, you're, you're just drilling wells, bringing in food parcels, handing them out. It's a, it's a simple intervention in a chaotic context might actually work for that, you know, staunch the bleeding kind of role. 
beyond that immediate response, no country or situation is completely chaotic. There'll be islands of solidity, islands of complexity, if you like, which is where actually you end up working. So yeah, there may be there may be organizations which are a bit more stable with which you can work. They may be CSOs, civil society organizations, but they may be traditional chiefs, they may be armed groups, you know. I mean, there's a lot more players in these places than the state and civil society. Um, <clears throat> so things you can do to support these islands, and here's where, yeah, my, some things I just chucked out. Think about individuals and leaders, you know, that the, these are, individuals are the, are the people who keep resurfacing in this chaotic sort of um, maelstrom of change. So we did some work, Oxfam did some work in the Congo, in the DRC, with civilian protection committees where we were training people to negotiate with, for example, um, the soldiers who were running, who had set up roadblocks to try and negotiate better access to their fields, lower lower taxes when they went past the road roadblocks and all that rest of it. What we found was that when those people were forced to flee because the war had come to their area, it was those people who ended up setting up the you know, committees in the refugee camps who just showed leadership. So it may well be that leadership is something that that that, that works in these chaotic places. Another thing that works is the diaspora, because many of these countries have big, influential, uh, connected diasporas who want to help back home. The question there is, do they want anything to do with the aid sector, which is a whole other question. But they, are, they will have influence over time and are worth at least consulting with. Another one, and this is an old hobby horse of mine, is faith organisations. You know, somebody once said to me, the Catholic Church is the only truly national institution in the, in the, in, in the DRC. People in these fragile and conflict places rely hugely on their faith, whatever faith it is. Their leaders are hugely influential. The institutions are fairly stable by comparison with many others. We should be getting much better at working with those. And yeah, when I asked an Oxfam person in DRC, do you work with the church? Uh, they said, sure, they deliver our leaflets. And I thought, well, that's really not what I'm asking. There should be a much more profound engagement, I think, with, with faith organizations. So that's just some initial thoughts, but the best thing about it was there was some great comments. So there were people coming on the comments questioning the whole idea of Cunnafin and those four quadrants, um, some really good challenges in terms of how we work in these areas. So if you are interested in this slightly kind of theoretical, but I think very important question of how we work in these very messy places, do go and have a look at the comments as well as the blog. And on that note, so a longer than usual uh, post, but um, anyway, I hope you have a great weekend and talk to you next week.